Well, tonight we're going to look at a tough topic and a tough text. And it's not that it is difficult in terms of what the Apostle Paul says and that we try to understand it, but it is difficult in doing what the Apostle Paul says to do. And that's what we're going to then spend our time looking at. And I think it's important to keep it in the context of what the Apostle Paul has been dealing with. And we are in this section that we're calling in our study undivided because we have the Apostle Paul back in chapter 1 and verse 10 teaching here how important it is for them to be of the same mind, to be of the same judgment, for them not to have these divisions among them, that there would not be fighting and strife and the things of that kind. And so after describing in those first four chapters about worldly wisdom and how they've been fleshly in their thinking and they do not have the mind of God and are not listening to the apostles uh, as they had been taught, he now comes to a present situation that exists in the Corinthian church and is now going to try to tell them, here's the proper way you're to handle these things. And in the midst of that, I think describing here's how you handle such a circumstance, it teaches us again the way that God wants us to handle particular issues in the congregation. And even more so that by following these rules and following this direction that God has given would help us to maintain maintain harmony and not be divided when you have these kinds of serious issues arise. And so uh, this is a really important chapter then in regards to that, in particular that the Apostle Paul is talking about how to deal with unrepentant sin. So let's read chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and then we'll make our observations from the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Apostle Paul says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with one who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. All right. A lot going on there. Let's begin with the first couple of verses here. We have the problem uh, that is stated for us as to what is the issue that he is dealing with. He describes that there's sexual immorality that is going on. It is not merely even sexual immorality, but he says it is something that even the world would condemn. 
And I want you to feel the weight of that because the Corinthian culture in that city is extremely permissive sexually. I mean, this is uh, something that would be very akin to our culture, which is it doesn't matter what you do. It's all acceptable. It's all fine. And yet here is a situation where he says, now the sexual immorality that is going on in this congregation is something that even the outsiders, even the Gentiles and the pagans would not be taught. As the end of verse 1 says, for the man has his father's wife. And the idea of having it probably means is implying that has married then likely the stepmother here. And the issue that I want you to observe is that he quickly states, here's what the problem is. But notice the whole paragraph is about the failure of the church. There is a sin that is going on there. And the whole discussion then is, here's what you should have been doing. And in verse 2 he says, one of the things that should have been happening is you should have been mourning over the sin. There is no mourning over the sin. In fact, you'll notice in verse 2 he says, you're arrogant. You are proud. You're accepting of this sin. And here the world would look at it and say, that is awful, that is a sin, that is terrible. And yet you don't look at it that way. You are not mourning over the sin. Instead, you are arrogant about it. You are proud about it. And you are excusing them that sin. I think that would be probably the most accurate way to represent how these Corinthian Christians are looking at it. Is Here is a clear violation of God's law. They don't seem to care that that's going on for whatever reason they excuse it they allow it they are fine with it they are proud of it and they do not mourn it they do not condemn it they do not say it's wrong they just continue to go along with that which i think should be a a startling observation and i think it's why the apostle paul says it in this way in in a pretty you know just incredulous way to say how can that possibly be because If there's anything the church should be is a people that mourn over sin. When sin is committed, this should be something that we do not rejoice in. This should not be something that we tolerate, accept, uh, find any pride or joy in in the slightest. But something that when we hear that there is sin, that that should crush us, that we would mourn over that, that we would be upset by that. And he says, how can it be that that's not the case with you? How can you not be mourning over that sin and said you were arrogant and proud about that? Something that even the world would deem as unacceptable and yet you find it acceptable yourself. And you'll notice then what he says is supposed to happen in verse 2. It says there at the end of verse 2, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And I think it's important for us to take a step back and consider that declaration and ask ourselves, why is this sin supposed to cause the church to remove the person from their midst? And I think it's important to underline that it can't be what the sin is, because when you jump down a little bit further in verse 11, he also speaks of those who are greedy, those who are idolaters, those who are revilers, those who are drunkards, and those who are swindlers. Now, he's not inclusive in saying, now, when it comes to sexual morality, that requires a whole different action to other sins that may be committed. He now gets down there in verse 11 and now speaks of, I don't care who it is, if the person that claims to be a Christian and yet is involved in any of these kinds of sins, this is supposed to be the response of the congregation. 
And so when asking the question, so why is the church supposed to remove the person from their midst? And we're understanding then that it's not what the sin is because he lumps in many other sins later on in this paragraph. And I think it's important to consider it can't be just simply because somebody sinned. If we remove people every time they sin, who's going to be left here in the building? Nobody. I mean, this place would have been empty a long time ago. I would have had to remove myself back on the first day. I mean, it just would have been the end. We all would have done that. We'd just say, all right, well, we've sinned today on whatever it is. So it can't just be, well, somebody has committed a sin, so we need to remove them. So what is he talking about? I think the context makes it fairly clear that we are talking about instances of sin that are unrepentant. That here is a situation of a person who is committing sin, and clearly the whole church knows about it. They know about it so much that even Paul knows about it. I mean, think about that for a minute. Paul's aware of this sexual immorality that is going on in the congregation. The congregation is aware of the sin that's going on in the congregation. And is anybody doing anything about it? No. Everybody seems to be fine with it. The individual who's involved in the sexual immorality seems to think it's absolutely fine. And they continue to go on living in that sin and continue to practice that sin. And the Apostle Paul is stepping into that and saying, wait a minute, that can't be. You can't allow those things to happen. You cannot have a person say, well, I decided to marry my, my, my father's wife. Oh, you're all good with that, right? Okay, carry on. You can't do that. You can't have known sin being practiced by a person and everybody's aware of it and everybody goes, well, that's fine. No big deal. No problem whatsoever. And so what I think he's showing here is that the church then is in error for not addressing the sin and not mourning over the sin. You should have addressed these things. You should have done something about it because this person is involved in this sin and he is not going to stop. He is with this father's wife and therefore something needs to happen. And as a reminder to us then, in thinking about this, is that sin is to never be taken lightly. And that is one of the things that I think strongly undergirds this chapter, is that sin would never be taken lightly. And unrepentant sin certainly cannot be ignored. It must be dealt with. It is not acceptable. The church must always stand for that. And he'll explain the reason why in a few verses here. But he's setting up something very important. Sin has to be dealt with. We do not ever condone sin. We'll never stand up and say, well, these sins are acceptable. These sins are okay. It's fine to do these things. It is not fine and it must be condemned. And so he's telling the church that needs to be your stance in regards to this person. The problem is you did not address the sin. The problem is you are not mourning over the sin. You are not doing something about it. And now he tells them what they were supposed to do. And you'll see that there like in verse 4. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the direction of what you are supposed to do. I'd like for you to observe, first of all, it says the church is supposed to be assembled. He says, now, you need to come together regarding this matter. And I think that's very important. And I think there's some 
something critical about the idea of transparency. This is not happening in secret. We're not going to have, you know, secret meetings and suddenly, well, what happened to brother so-and-so? We, we, you know, he's been this Christian here all this time and he married, married his uh, father's wife and now suddenly he disappeared. This is supposed to be something that is done before the whole congregation. And I think it's important to underline that because sometimes we can be uncomfortable with that. Sometimes we just don't like the idea of, well, we all have to come together and and note that there is this notable sin and say this is the sin that's going on. And yet that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says to do. This is the church's to assemble and is to know this sin and to be able to present it to the church in this way. And so while we can kind of have a discomfort with those kinds of things, it's what God tells us we are supposed to do. And then verse 5, I think, is particularly interesting for us to consider where he says, here's what's happening when you remove this person and deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And the thing that is, I think, challenging about that declaration is he doesn't explain what he means by that. I mean, here he just said, you're delivering the person to Satan. Okay, that's quite strong. And it's for the destruction of the flesh. What does that look like? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And there's not an explanation about any of those things. I think it's important to consider what we've seen in our context, and I think that that helps us quite significantly in what we've studied in the first four chapters so far. One of the things that we've seen the Apostle Paul describing in regards to these Corinthians is that they are very fleshly in their thinking. They have worldly thinking. They are relying upon worldly wisdom and not godly wisdom. And so I think much of that would have to do with what is attempted here in this act is to destroy this kind of fleshly behavior and fleshly thinking. The church is now making a move to show this individual the way that you think about your sin is wrong. And what you're doing in your behavior is worldly and fleshly. We are trying to communicate that to that individual and such that would be the situation that's being laid out here. You are delivering this person for the destruction of the flesh. And I don't think that's, you know, the body is actually physically being harmed in some way. But this fleshly behavior, this worldly activity, we want that destroyed. We want those sinful activities brought to an end. And so he uses that language of you are delivering this person so that that would be the result that the sin would end. I think the best place for us to understand exactly what that looks like is really in Matthew 18. That's the place where we are given a fuller picture of what this looks like in dealing with sin. And so what I'd like for you to do is to turn over to Matthew 18. You keep your hand here, a ribbon in 1 Corinthians 5, and we'll come back to that in just in just a minute. But I want to spend a few minutes in Matthew 18 because I think that gives us really the fullest picture of what this is supposed to look like in the practice of Christians and a congregation. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Stop there. I think it's useful to tell him just take these piece by piece. First thing that's supposed to happen, you are aware of sin. You go to that person one on one. 
Nobody else knows about it. You speak to them directly and you say, here's the situation that I know. Here's what's happening. It needs to stop. Here's the sin that's being committed. That's the first step that's supposed to happen. One-on-one, nobody else involved, nobody else knows, one-on-one to that individual. And he says, that's what's supposed to happen. If he listens to you, you have gained, gained your brother. Verse 16. If, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That individual goes to that person and says, here's the sin. They don't repent. We'll talk about that word in a minute too. They don't listen. They don't repent. They don't change. Then what's supposed to happen? Here he says, go get one or two more people involved to bring into the situation. I put up there on the screen as a a side point, Galatians 6 verse 1 is very important right here. These should be people who are spiritual, you who are spiritual, that you would restore such a one. And so in our situation, that would be somebody you'd look at like myself or the elders or others who are spiritual leaders that you would look to and say, they are capable and they are equipped to be able to go to this person, speak to them about their sin and tell them, here's what needs to happen. Here's the sin that we are aware of. And we are confronting you about that because we are concerned about it. So after one person, no, no change. He says one or two more people then should be brought into the situation. But he brings it up in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I, uh, I am among them. So. If there's still no repentance after one or two more individuals go and speak about this known sin, now the church is brought into the situation. And now all of the church is trying to go to this individual and say, here's the sin that we are aware of. This sin is wrong. This sin needs to stop. You need to repent. You need to turn away from that. And he says, if that still doesn't cause repentance, this declaration, let it be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And that would be in parallel to what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 5, removing someone from your midst. Remember to the Jewish mind, someone like a tax collector, you stay far, far away from. Let them be like that to you. And that's what Paul is describing as well. They are now to be removed from your midst. Please keep verses 18 to 20 with the rest of this. How often those have been put to I don't know where in terms of some other teaching. But he says, when this action is done by the congregation, that is being enacted by God himself. This is not saying when you go on vacation and there's two of you together and you have the Lord's Supper, God's there too. That's not what this context is about. This context is whatever the church then activates in terms of trying to bring this person back and is announcing their sin and now says this person must be removed because they will not repent that action is also a consequence before God and that's why I think that is so important when he says that there it will be done for them by my father in heaven this is an important action that is happening this is not just simply oh well well I just won't go to that church anymore we'll just go somewhere else 
No, we are talking about something that is grave before the Lord and that the Lord sees what this what has happened. And the Lord is aware of the sin. This is not just something that deals with the local congregation. It is about the rescue of the soul. And so when you come now back to first Corinthians chapter five and you look at what the apostle Paul has been talking about at this point, this is the very thing that the apostle Paul is is doing here. We don't know the background of what's gone on up to this point. Paul, as the apostle, is apparently clearly aware of all the circumstances of the situation. That he's able to tell these Corinthians, here's what needs to be done. This is the step you're at. That this person needs to be removed from among you. This person is unrepentant. They're not changing. And you now need to do something about that. But notice the reason why, again in verse 5, says there in verse 5 that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And I want to underline that, and I'm going to underline that a few times in the lesson tonight, is that the goal of all of these actions is always to be for the saving of the soul. Withdrawing from a person is not punishment. It is not punishing. It is not punishing. It is attempting to awaken their worldly mind to help them see that they are in sin and need to stop what they are doing. We are trying to rescue them from what they are doing. They are destroying themselves from their sin. And we are doing these things not out of a judgment or a punishment, but out of an effort to rescue the soul that is steeped in sin. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, this is why you must do this. This is why you bring about these activities. And I think it's important to note what repentance then looks like. Because how the scriptures tell us is that you need to see this repentance. And when there is repentance, as Matthew 18 says, there's no more need for action. And I think that's important to note as well. If you go one-on-one to your brother who is in sin and they repent... The process stops. You don't know now go get the elders and get one or two more people and, and keep going. And if you bring in the elders and they now address the issue and they and you say you got to stop the sin and the person stops, then that's the end. It stops. But if they don't repent, then it goes to the church. And if all the church goes to that person, that person now repents. Then it stops. This is not like a train that just can't be stopped and we just have to go all the way to withdrawal no matter what. The goal is step by step by step, hoping and praying for repentance. And if repentance comes, you've gained the brother back and everything is good and we receive them back and welcome that. I'm not sure your background of what you've seen in terms of this withdrawing process or what you've experienced for for yourself. And I'll just speak anecdotally from the things that I've seen and make some observations about that. I think it's important, number one, that I have seen congregations take these steps backwards. And that's a really bad idea because it's not the way God says it. What you often, I often have seen is the church immediately announces withdrawal and then everybody now starts trying to save the person when you've got it completely backward. It should have been one person, then one or two more people, then the church, then the process of, of withdrawing, not this public declaration. We need to have withdrawal from this person. And now everybody goes, well, wait a minute. Uh, we, has anybody talked to them first? Well, let's go try 
to rescue them before we do all this. That's completely backward. And so I've seen that happen. And then I've seen the other side of the pendulum where absolutely nothing happens. Where there is known sin, and just like in the Corinthian congregation, everybody's fully aware of it, but nobody's going to do anything about it. And that's just as much of a sin. In fact, you'll notice the picture that he gives in terms of what he's looking for and why this is so important is trying to bring the person back to God. And I would like to just kind of underline that with a very bold pin and try to just strike that very hard. The goal is not getting somebody to say, I'm sorry, because sorrow is not repentance. And yet often, what you see in our culture especially, if somebody does something that's wrong, what do they do? I'm sorry. That's not repentance. That's just saying, I'm sorry. And 2 Corinthians is very clear about that, where it says, there is a kind of grief, and you'll see a sorrow expressed, but he says it leads to death. Sorrow isn't enough. It isn't good enough just to be like, well, I'm really sorry about that. I, uh, I, either I'm sorry I've been caught or sorry even about the sin. There needs to be something more where he speaks there in 2 Corinthians 6.10. There is a godly grief and that is to lead to a repentance that leads to salvation. What does he mean by that? Except that there is fruit of repentance. It's not a person who does like King Saul and tells Samuel, yep, you're right, I've sinned now, you know, let's carry on and continue the sacrifices and honor me before the people as he does after the Amalekite situation. I'm sorry about that, Samuel, let's just carry on. That's not what we're looking for. That's not true repentance. And that's why Samuel's all over him about the things that Saul has done. He's like, you're not seeming to understand what you've done. You're not aware of your sin. If you truly understand your sin and you understand what you've done and you are convicted in the heart by your sin, then you will do whatever it takes to make that right as you possibly you can before God and before others. There is a fruit of repentance that's supposed to come. When John is preaching about the need for the repentance as they come to him, and he speaks about there needs to be the bearing of fruit of this repentance, he's not asking for people to come to him and say, I'm sorry, but for changes to occur. Life changes are supposed to happen. Dramatic changes would happen. And that would reveal this godly grief because that's what repentance looks like or people who are broken by their sin and are doing everything they can to get past that, to do what is right, to overcome the sin and fight past that, not to just simply continue on in the same things they were doing before. And I think that's so important for us because it is very easy to invoke sorrow out of people. People will often say they're sorry just to have you get them off your ba- off their back. <laughs> sorry, leave me alone, right? You know, that, that's an easy thing to do. That's not what we want because that doesn't save the soul. Have we brought about salvation? Have we rescued the soul from death? Not in the slightest. There needs to be far more that comes from that. We are very thrilled to see someone be sorrowful. But we need that godly grief to lead to repentance, which leads to salvation. There must be action involved in the changing of the life. And so that's, in essence, what we are looking at is we want the soul to return to the Lord. And that should be witnessed by their actions. 
we should be able to see it in the things that they're doing, that they are getting their life right with God. They're making changes that are obvious and observable. And by doing those things, we are recognizing that they are now back on the right track and following God and serving God with all of their heart. And that should be what we expect when we're looking for that. You imagine... If we backed all the way up to Matthew chapter 18 there, and you're the one-on-one individual and says, a brother has sinned against you. And you go up to that person and you say, here's what you've done. And they say, I'm sorry. And then continue doing the very same thing they were already doing. Have you brought about repentance? No. Saying I'm sorry doesn't fix that. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for a contrite heart that now does whatever it takes to try to make that right and make changes in their life. And that's what God is expecting of us. We do not come before God in terms of believing, repenting, confessing, being baptized. So we believe and then say, God, I'm sorry, and then go ahead and continue living on. Repentance is a 180 change of life. It is a dramatic change where we now live differently for God because we are aware of our of our sin. And that's what we are trying to communicate to the person when we are trying to rescue them from sin is that we are not looking for a, a simply a worldly sorrow, but we are looking for a godly grief that would now bear fruit to repentance so that their soul would certainly be rescued. Verses 6 through 8. Why is this so important? Why must this be done? You will notice in verses 6 through 8, he returns yet again back to the problem of the Corinthian church. He points out in verse 6, your boasting is not good. You should have been mourning. You should have been taking action. You should have been doing something. Instead, they apparently are rejoicing in the sin and not then taking action against the sin. And he points out why this is so important. Because if we do not do something in terms of an action against the sin, then what we are communicating is that sinful behavior is okay, which only encourages other people to also commit that sin. And that's what he means by, don't you know that the the leaven analogy here, that it leavens the whole lump of dough. The idea is not that this person here now has the cooties and now contaminates the rest of us by sitting in the very same place. That's not the picture. The picture is if you allow them to believe that their sin is acceptable and they continue going on doing that, then people look at that and go, well, I guess that's okay. We'll do that too. And the last thing a congregation would ever need to do is communicate that any kind of sin is acceptable before God. Yet if we don't do something about sin, and point out sin and look for a repentance. And that's exactly what we're doing. We are saying certain sins are fine and we're not going to do anything about it, which communicates to other people that those sins are acceptable and they'll go ahead and follow in those footsteps. And so we are trying to rescue that. It's why we want to do something about it. Verse 7 is really a beautiful picture because it gives you a picture of the Passover. If you remember during the Passover week, that was the week of unleavened bread. And so all the leaven in the homes needed to be out of the house. And then you had your Passover and he uses that analogy in the same way and says, well, you recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover, a whole other sermon that would be fun to do that I won't have time tonight to talk about. But you have this great analogy here of here is Jesus. He is your Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed. And since he is our Passover, then our sins are supposed to be rid of as well. We're supposed to purge sin out of our hearts and purge it out of our lives. And so that's what verse eight 
made his sign, and therefore let us celebrate this festival of the Passover, not with old leaven, leaven of malice and evil. That's supposed to be purged out of our lives. We're supposed to be actively getting rid of sin, not encouraging it, not rejoicing in it, not being proud in it. But instead, verse 8, we are to be celebrating with the unloving bread of sincerity and truth. We are looking for sincerity and integrity. Friends, the consistent message that we must proclaim as individuals to not only the world, but to one another, and a consistent message that the congregation must also be preaching to the world, but also to one another, is the message of repentance. Repent of sins. Turn away from sins. Do not follow in the ways of sin and think you're acceptable before God. You must have a heart that goes after sin, attacks sin, and fights it tooth and nail to get rid of it and purge it from your lives like you were purging leaven out of the house before the Passover feast. That's the analogy he uses. That you're going through all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your being, and you are constantly purging out wickedness, evil, malice, whatever it is, constantly removing, constantly removing. I believe this is very much the idea of what examining ourselves and looking into the perfect law of liberty is all about, is we are always to look at ourselves and consider where is sin, where is failure, and what can I do now to get rid of that? What can I do to repent of that? How How can I solve these sins so that I'm no longer caught by them anymore? Because here is Paul's claim. They're supposed to be a clean break from sin. And friends, it doesn't matter what the sin is. We should be doing whatever we possibly can do to put obstacles in the way, barriers in the way to keep us from the sins that we know we struggle with. We should do everything in our mind to put those obstacles in the way so those temptations can be weakened, if not eradicated altogether. And yet too often what we do is we say, well, I'm going to be strong and we walk right next to the fire and then we wonder why we fall into temptation again and again. That's not wisdom and certainly not godly wisdom. If we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, then we will do everything in our power to create obstacles and do what it takes to be able to try to fight sin as best we can. And we will not be perfect at it, but we will take it seriously that sin is serious to God. Our souls are on the line. Souls are at stake. Our own soul is at stake. And that we would do whatever it takes to try to prevent sin from coming into our minds and into our lives. You'll notice verses 9 through 13. He then talks about what this doesn't mean. I think that's really useful right here. He says, here's the problem. Here's what you've done wrong. Here's what you should have done. And here's not what I don't mean by that. <laughs> I like that. Here's what I didn't mean by, the, by what I just taught you about those things. And that's what he begins. To, he says in verse 9, I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. But I'm not talking about the people in the world. Uh, that's not possible. <laughs> you, know, you can't do that. He's not talking about, okay, now anybody in the world who has got known sin, you need to stay away from them and treat them as, as such and remove yourself from those very things. That's not possible is what he says, first of all. And remember, that's not the example of Jesus. 
The thing that Jesus got criticized greatly for was how much time he spent with sinners, with tax collectors, with those who are immoral. He would even eat with them and drink with them. Why is he doing that? Because he's trying to reach them. We have to spend time with those who are in the world if we are going to reach them. We as a congregation must be welcoming sinners into the fold. We want people to come here who are in sin so that they can hear the message of the truth of the gospel. And so we need to spend time with the lost. We cannot try to insulate ourselves from them and say, okay, I'm going to try to be pure and stay away from all all the lost. Then you're not the light of the world anymore. And you're not the salt of the earth, which is what your identity is, as Jesus said. So it's a reminder to us of what we are supposed to be, that we continue to desire to teach the lost, to teach the gospel to them. And we want every person in the world to come here. And it doesn't matter what their sin is. It doesn't matter what they are involved in. They need to hear the gospel and they need to be here to hear the truth of the gospel. So it's not about that. You'll notice he points out what it is. In verse 12, he says what I was talking about with those who are inside the church. I'm talking about, as he uses earlier in uh, verse... Well, where'd you go? Eleven. One who bears the name of brother. That's what he's looking for. Here is a person who is a Christian, a person who claims to be a Christian, a person who's been in this congregation and now is practicing sin and is unrepentant. That's the situation that he is referring to. He is not talking about referring to the world and withdrawing from them. We'd have to withdraw from all the world. That's what he says. That's not possible. He's talking about us, those people who are unrepentant of sin and yet they bear the name Christian, there must be an action that follows to withdraw from such a one. That such a one would be removed. These are the people he's talking about. I'd also like to spend a moment and highlight the end of verse 11 where it says they're not to even eat with such a one. Because that's a very powerful statement. And it's important for us to understand really the idea of what that would have meant in that society because eating in the ancient Near Eastern society was very much a social bond. It still pretty much is in our culture as well. Somebody that you eat with is not usually some perfect stranger. I don't know that you've ever gone to McDonald's, found a perfect stranger and said, hey, I'll sit right here next to you and we'll eat a meal together. It communicates a friendship. It communicates a relationship. That's what eating does. Eating together communicates that. And it very much did in that culture and in that society. And so what the Apostle Paul is is warning here is there is no way on our part that we can communicate to somebody who is practicing sin and is unrepentant of it as if everything is okay. We can't communicate that to them. We don't want to do things that are going to pretend like it's okay when their soul is in jeopardy. Now, that's hard because I think we're often afraid of those kinds of things. You know, I don't want to hurt their feelings. You know, I don't want to feel bad and all that. Well, their soul's at stake. So you might have to hurt their feelings a little. It doesn't mean you're trying to. 
But you're going to have to communicate to them what you're doing is wrong. The life choice you've made is wrong. You're losing your soul. Your soul is in jeopardy. The choices that you're making are causing you to forfeit your eternal reward. And we must communicate that to them. And that's why this is put here, here not to even eat with such a one, is that we are not going to say, okay, you can't come here, but we're all just going to be friends and it's all going to be okay. It's not okay. The whole point of communicating that to that individual is again to reinforce how much we are concerned about that person's soul. The choices that they are making are removing themselves from God. And by removing yourself from God, you have removed yourself from us. And we can't be in the same relationship anymore and enjoy the same fellowship and enjoy the blessings of being together when you are making those kinds of choices. That's why we communicate that and that's why we do that. And I'll say something really hard here as well. And I understand how hard it is. And it applies to my own situation as much as it may apply to yours as well. But friends, this is just as important with family. That's just as important with family. You need to communicate that what you're doing is wrong. They need to know that. The decisions that we make in regards to that are difficult and challenging. And again, that we recognize we're not talking about the outsiders of the world. But we're talking about people who claim to be a Christian. That's what he's talking about right here. There is a challenge on our part to still communicate that very same message. I've tried to communicate that to my kids. Is Listen, there are certain blessings of relationship of when you do what's right. You don't do what's right. That changes the relationship. And that's what's being pictured here, that we need to communicate that, that our relationship with God is stronger and greater and far more important than even the family relationship, because I'm concerned about your soul. And what good is it if we are all happy hunky dory for the 80 years or whatever we get on this life and somebody goes to hell? We have to communicate to them by whatever means we think is wise and spiritual That the life you're living, that you've claimed to be a Christian, but you are living in sin, is not acceptable. And if you want to talk to me personally about that afterward, I have my own story. I've talked to you about my own mother and all the difficulties with that and having to communicate that to her. She listens to these things when I preach, so she's probably hearing that right now. But it's the truth. The relationship has to be different. It's not going to be the same anymore. And it tears me up and breaks my heart. But I have to communicate what you're doing is wrong. And it's not going to be the same until you get it right. That's what Paul wants them to do. You have to communicate that. Otherwise, you've done nothing in trying to rescue their soul. And we become accountable if we've let them to believe that what they're doing is acceptable. We can't do it. And it'll rip your heart inside, I know. But their soul is at stake. Let's conclude then with this and just giving an overview of what we're talking about then. Final points then. What do we learn from this? Number one, we are to mourn over unrepentant sin. We're not allowed to ignore it. We're just not allowed to ignore it. We cannot pretend it's gone. It's okay. I can't tell you what a temptation that is. It's so easy to just want to go, well, you know, I just don't want to deal with it. Shove it in the closet, put it under the carpet. Let's just not worry about it. Let's just not deal with it. Let's just all pretend everything's okay. 
But that is not what we are called to do as Christians individually when we are aware of sin, nor as a congregation when the congregation is aware of sin. We must do something about it. We must mourn over it. We must speak about it and say, you've got to do something about that. We are not going to ignore it. Number two, then let's take the proper steps. And I would highlight in order, (laughs) the proper steps in order, according to Matthew 18. Because what we are trying to do is look for true repentance in this process. We want to see the soul rescued. I don't want to hear, I'm sorry. I want to see that you love the Lord your God. And whatever we can do to encourage you to that life change. But that life change has to happen. Notice that the Apostle Paul said, there's a worldly grief and there's a godly grief. And on the surface, those things look the same in terms of your mouth. But they present themselves different in action. We are looking for a godly grief that leads to repentance. And it's not because we're mean. It's because we want the soul saved. It doesn't do any good to say sorry and you still go to hell over your sin. And so we want to see the fruit of repentance so that we can feel secure in knowing you're getting your life right with God and you're back on his side. And so it's so important that we are trying to communicate to the individual. We are trying to rescue your soul and that everything we are doing is out of love for you. That's why James says it this way in James 5.19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And when you read that, I hope you will just hear there is a responsibility on our part to do something when we are aware of sin. We have to do something. We are required to do something. I must do everything I can to rescue your soul. And I cannot pretend that it's not there. It has to be done. And so James says, you see someone that wanders, you must do something about that to save the soul from death and cover the multitude of sins. It is important for us to recognize, friends, every soul is important. Every soul matters to God. It doesn't matter what the person has done. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It doesn't matter if the person did it against me or against you. Every soul matters to God, and we must be the ones who act as the ones who will restore that person. Because every soul matters to God. Every soul is critical to God. This is why God told stories of leaving 99 to go get one. He wasn't satisfied with 99% and went, all right, that's a pretty good percentage. Every single soul matters to God, and we must be impressed by that. When a person then bears the fruit of repentance and turns his or her life back to God, that's when we rejoice and we receive the person back. When you think about the parable of the lost things, we talked about that this morning, I'm going to bring that parable back in tonight. You think about that parable of the lost things, in there being a lost coin and a lost sheep and a lost son, in all three of those illustrations found in that parable, you see God rejoicing and God celebrating. When the sheep come back, when the coin is found, when the sun comes back, God is rejoicing over that sin. And I want you to think about what was the response of the older brother in that? 
The younger, the older brother said, I'm not going to rejoice in your return. I'm not going to rejoice in this son coming back. Because you remember, he talks about all the things that he did. He took all your stuff and spent it on wasteful living. And here I've been your faithful son this whole time. And he would not join in the rejoicing. He would not join in that in that festival. And I want you to notice that what God's saying is if God is rejoicing, we must also. When God sees repentance, we must be overjoyed also. And sometimes that hurts because it was against us and it hurt us and somebody did that to us. But that person truly repents and we see the fruit of repentance, then we are called to rejoice with that person and have joy with that person. So I would sum up 1 Corinthians 5 in this way. That we would have a heart for lost souls, a heart for lost souls that is so passionate for the saving of souls. That we are willing to apply all of God's principles to save a person who has once been a follower of Christ and has turned away. Whatever it would take. And so if we see somebody who wanders away, we will not ignore it, but we will do something about it and we'll be willing to take all the steps necessary to do it. And by the same token, if someone were to come back and show the fruit of repentance and prove that they are truly following God and getting on the right track, that we rejoice as God would rejoice in that and do all that we can to encourage that person to do what is right in following them. And may we desire their salvation above all else. And let that always be the reason why we say what we say and we do what we do. Everything we say, everything we do is because souls are at stake. And we must do everything in our power to be able to communicate that and act upon that to bring that soul back. And as much as applying 1 Corinthians 5 can be hard and it hurts to apply it, God says to do it because this is the way to be able to communicate to those who are Christians who have turned their back on God how important it is to come back to God. When you are out of fellowship with God, you're out of fellowship with us. And we have to communicate that message of how important it is to get your life right with God. I hope you think about that lesson and the impact that that would have and how we deal with people today. You pull your songbooks out. We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. And I hope that from this morning's lesson that we see God as this passionate, loving Father, that you'll see Him in that same light, that the reason these things have been given to us is because He loves you. And He does not desire for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. May we do all that we can in our best effort to show the love of God to others and how much lost souls are valuable to us. Be ready to come to Jesus tonight. Repent of your sins. Turn away from sin. Change your life to follow the Lord your God with all of your heart. Confess Jesus to be the Son of God and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you come tonight while we stand and while we sing?